The blender has broken. The circus left town. And that lost salt shaker was finally found. The kid weighed the anchor, the drifter sailed away. And all of the parrot heads are in such disarray. Jimmy, you held the magic. Your passing was tragic. We feel like we've drowned. You were the life of the party when summertime came. We put on our grass skirts and we danced in the rain. We sang along with you. We were kids for the night. And for just a few moments, the world seemed so right. We need some cheap airfares, got to fly to send somewhere. We're going insane. And the stars fell on Alabama tonight. And the Gulf Coast is clear and blue. As the son of a son of a sailor reached that far distant shore and passed through. Welcome to the Chris Kid 42 podcast, the podcast that talks about life, the universe, and everything. And as you heard there, a very poignant opening, well for me it is, and all the parrot heads out there, as we mourn the passing with an ode to the late, great Jimmy Buffett. I do hope he's currently enjoying that cheeseburger in paradise right now. Okay, enough of that maudling around. We're going to go straight into it today. I wasn't planning on doing this episode for some time, but it's something I put together when, during other research, I stumbled across the stories about bars in Turkey that would often employ basket men, whose sole purpose was to take patrons home when they were too drunk. Well, too drunk to stand up. Most of these men would work as porters during the day, and then would work as basket men at night to earn some extra money. In Turkish, these people are called kufetci. Apologies for all you Turkish listeners out there, but that's the best I can do. And to be so drunk, you couldn't walk was called kufe. There's also a saying in Turkish, apparently, kufelik almak, which means needing to be carried home in a basket. We've all been there, I'm sure. Actually, not dissimilar to the Tagalog lasingero, which is drunk in the street or a drunkard. Although I do like the Nepali rangi changi lagyo, which roughly translates as feeling colourful. I've definitely felt very colourful a few times, and I'm sure a few of you have too. And what I'm getting at here, this prompted me to find out some of the best of drunken history, or tales of drunkenness, 
And also, as you know, I do like the origins of words. Etymology, if you will. For example, during the mid-19th century, Scotland was the home to around 2,300 pubs. Good grief, we're into this already. No introduction, no YouTube channel, what's going on? Bollocks to it, let's keep going. Haha, <laughs> as I said, during the mid-19th century, Scotland was home to around 2,300 pubs. And due to their appetite for having a few bevies, this was also the time when a group calling itself the Temperance Movement began to gain favour. Oh dear. And this was in both municipal and parliamentary politics. Good grief. After gaining enough momentum, the Temperance Movement managed to persuade Parliament to create what was known as the Forbes-McKenzie Act in 1853. This Act of Parliament meant that, oh no, the sale of alcohol was prohibited on Sundays. Well, almost prohibited. Let me tell you more. You can take it from our pubs, but you can't take it from our hotels. Ha <laughs> ha! Well, do you think the Scottish would give up drinking on the Sabbath that easy, do you? As well as this crafty little loophole, it was also possible to grab a cheeky beer if you could get yourself aboard one of the Scottish paddle boats. So you could get beer in hotels and in paddle boats. Boats that took folks to and from islands around the west coast of Scotland. Now these steam-powered paddle boats, easy for you to say after a few drinks, or better known as steamers, became immensely popular during the 1850s, 60s and 70s. Right up until the Forbes-McKenzie Act was sharpened to a finer point in 1882 with the Passenger Vessels Licenses Act. Scotland. Bastards, eh? Up until this later act was brought forward, it was full steam ahead and many a drunken reveller would pay a small fee to get aboard and take advantage of this loophole. From their earliest appearance in the West Highland waters, steamships were associated with thick smoke and happy inebriation. And to a considerable extent, they became the maritime equivalent of change houses and inns on mainland roads, or floating banqueting halls and gin palaces for the great and the good. After three decades of drunken sailing, the phrase, getting steaming, was coined. And more than 150 years later, it is still used to describe people getting completely inebriated. Inebriated is a very good word anyway. So I say we should all raise a glass and salute those drunken pioneers who had the will to swill and enough funk to get steaming drunk. <laughs> Another poet and I didn't know it. So, if you've ever been steaming, inebriated, legless, out of it, mullered, mortal, blotto, sloshed, sozzled, rat-arsed, pissed, out of your tree, off your trolley, wasted, tipsy, hammered, smashed, or plain old plastered while out on the lash, then this episode may possibly appeal to you. But remember to drink irresponsibly. I mean, remember to drink responsibly. This is a clean living podcast, don't you know? Anyway, a quick word from a good friend of mine. I was still a like a giant marshmallow. Out of the fingerless gloves were essential, and I remember being just off St Alexander Square, you know, behind the chocolate shop. The head had become completely detached. I always felt like we were being watched. I went completely cross-eyed. I mean, you must have been there. Oh, you must go. It's quite, 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 quite beautiful. And I... 
I mean, now it's all the dividends are passed. I admit it, everybody. It was a lorry load of interesting cheeses. There is no art to find the mind's construction of the face. Only living groups like little furs, and then they make their burrows in rotten wood. Even then, I mean, I just had a face like a man baboon and asked to match. Shoot him, you fool! I didn't hear any of it, of course. I'm afraid I was very, very drunk. Oh, yes. I do love the variety of terms for being drunk. And now you know about steaming. How about a few more familiar ones that you may have heard but not quite known the origin story to? Ooh, an origin story! <laughs> Let's have a quick introduction. Sing as the spirits move you. Sing till you're doubling high. Plain Jane becomes lovable in dust when six moons shine in the sky. Sing to a sailor's courage. Sing while the elbows bend. Hey, Ruby, port your harbor. Hoist three sheets to the wind. Ten hours ago. I took me a wife, but she came at me with a gun and a knife. I ran and I ran as fast as I could to the nearest saloon in my neighborhood. Three sheets in the wind. Three sheets in the wind. My head's going round. Nine moons and hoist. 
Hoist three sheets to the wind. Hoist three sheets to the wind. I do like that. A few good examples of the classic saying, three sheets to the wind. I guess if you've heard of three sheets to the mouse, you should go listen to them. They're not bad. So let's start with three sheets to the wind. Now, if you were on a ship, another ship, in the early 1800s, you might notice that the three corners of each sail were bound down with ropes. These ropes were called sheets, and they served to keep the ship steady in the wind. When the sheets came loose, the vessel would zigzag to and fro, meandering around the sea like a drunken sailor. What shall we do with... No, we're not singing today. In fact, around 1821, people realised that this might be the best possible way to describe drunken sailors. Or drunken anyone for that matter. It was like there were three sheets in the wind. Similarly, two sheets in the wind was someone who was a bit less drunk. Or a sheet or so meant they were just a little bit tipsy. Now here's a selected timeline of other drunken terms. Let's start with Kupschotten. Circa 1330. One is overcome with liquor. This is shotten in the sense of discharged or emptied. Everything is gone from the cup. A form cup shot is also recorded, but much later in 1593. I guess there's a link with the noun, as in a shot of brandy. <laughs> now let's go to 1529. Bousy. The first instance of boozy. Spelt with an ow or an ow. An ow as an OU or an ow as an OW. Until the 18th century. An early use of a verb, bouse, is recorded in around 1300. From Dutch, where it is originally the name of a drinking vessel, but it doesn't become common until the 16th century. Along with the adjective, at first chiefly in the cant of thieves and beggars, up rolls the bousy sire, writes Alexander Pope in the New Dunciad, 1742, line 485. Yes, I did look it up. And one of a long line of poets to be attracted to the word. Oh, poets, we, we do like a good bit of poetry here. There's more poetry episodes coming. 1564, we had tippled for tippler the name for a tavern keeper. 1611, I do like this one, we had Bumpsy, inspired by the staggering gait of the inebriated. In 1656, we had Fuddled. The verb fuddle, to have a drinking bout, is known from the late 16th century and led to several idioms, such as fuddle one's cap or nose, to get drunk. The rhyme with muddle brought a later blurring of the two meanings, so that when we read in an 1830 publication, I was not drunk, I was only fuddled. It isn't clear whether the sense is slightly drunk or not drunk at all. Modern usage of fuddle tends to be for the confused sense, as with befuddled. Let's move on, what's next? A mucky bus. <laughs> I like that one, I've been on a few mucky buses. <laughs> but this is from 1756. A jocular usage, ooh jocular, we do like jocular here. A jocular usage re reported in an anecdote of Horace Walpole in a letter to George Montague, April the 20th, 1756. At a supper, he hears Lady Coventry say that, If I drink any more, I should be mucky bus. Lady Mary Coke inquired what this meant, and was told that it was Irish for sentimental. The mock Latin ending is known from other facetious 18th century slang formations, such as stinky bus. But there's no obvious connection with muck. Lady Coventry came from Ireland. The likelihood is that Walpole misheard a genuine Irish word, perhaps mouthnitch. I have no idea if that's the right pronunciation for those of you in Belfast, but it means sentimental. Anywho, more sailor stuff. In 1770, we had groggy. Having too much grog, the sailors drink of rum and water. In 1805, we were bluted. Bluter, B-L-O-O-T-E-R, 
spelled also as Bluter, B-L-U-I-T-E-R, and Bluther, as in Lex Bluther, the drunken Superman nemesis. <laughs> it's a 16th century Scots word for a noisy fool or clumsy oaf. It had developed as a verb use by the 19th century, and bluted very drunk was one of the consequences. It's still used in Scotland as well as in Northern Ireland and parts of the north of England where I'm from. I've heard it before. In the 20th century, it turns up again in Ireland as a jocular colloquialism, polluted, or polluted. Polluted? Polluted. I like both of those. Lex polluted. <laughs> oh dear. That's from DK. That's from DK. DC Drunken Comics. <laughs> Let's move on. 1843, we had Swizzled. In the 18th and early 19th century, Switchel or Swizzle were slang names for drinks made of various mixes, such as molasses and water. Ooh. A green Swizzle was popular in the West Indies, acknowledged by P.G. Woodhouse in The Rummy Affair of Old Biffy, 1925. Bertie Wooster observes, If I ever marry and have a son, Green Swizzle Wooster is the name that will go down in the register. <laughs> the origins are unclear. Eric Partridge thought a swizzle could be a blend of swig and guzzle. There's a dialect background too. A swizzler was a name for a drunkard in Yorkshire. A New York Times article in 1910 explains it by saying that swizzled means beaten as with an egg beater into a froth. Whatever the origin, swizzled, totally drunk, had a vogue which lasted into the 20th century. Another personal favourite from 1917, Blotto. The analogy is probably with blots and blotting paper, which soaks up ink as a person soaks up drink. Oh, lots of poetry. It was a favourite piece of the upper-class slang in the first half of the 20th century. Here is Freddy hung over in the opening chapter of, once again, P.G. Woodhouse's Jill the Reckless, 1920, Chapter 1. I was possibly a little blotto, not whiffled, perhaps, but indisputably blotto. Ha-ha! <laughs> old chap! Anyway, 1923 we have Poggled, and apparently the origins are from the Hindi word Pagal for madman. Ooh. In 1943 we were plonked, clearly from plonk, the facetious pronunciation of blonk as in vamblonk, white wine, which was widely used in Australia and New Zealand before travelling around the English-speaking world as a term for any kind of cheap wine. A drunkard addicted to plonk, a plonko, would be very definitely plonked or plonked up. <laughs> the plonker. In 1957, we were honkers. I've never heard of that one before, but apparently we were. Among its many possible roots is the slang verb honk or vomit. Ah, I see. In fact, there are over 3,000 words in English for the state of being drunk, including such other classics as ramsquaddled, obfusticated, tight as a tick, and the curious, being too free with Sir Richard. More about that in a second. Other drinking-related sayings and words are Hair of the dog that bit you? Where does that come from? This metaphor first surfaced in 1546 in a collection of English colloquial sayings. What how, fellow, thou knave? I pray thee let me and my fellow have a hair of the dog that bit us last night. And bitten we were both to the brain all right. Ha <laughs> ha! That's my best Bertie Worcester from 1546. And we all know what that feels like. The homeopathic idea of taking a little of what afflicted you as a cure can be traced all the way back to Hippocrates. The ancient Greeks were much more literal in their application. 
believing that a dog bite would heal more quickly if you ate or applied dog hair to the wound. Oh my goodness me. Good lord, hypocrites. <laughs> oh, dude, hypocrites. <laughs> For those of you who remember Bill and Ted, that would be funny. For everybody else, it won't be. Anyway, another thing. Here's mud in your eye. Now this toast may have been popular with the soldiers slogging through the muddy trenches of World War I, but it did not originate with them as many believe. It was being bandied about in US saloons as early as 1890 and was popular with the English fox hunting and racehorse crowd before then. Most likely it's a backhanded toast among jockeys, meaning here's to you losing the race. If you've ever been to a racetrack after a good rain, you'll notice that the leading horse throws up a lot of mud, and the trailing jockeys tend to get splattered from head to toe. The phrase was all the more pertinent before the introduction of goggles to the sport, so here's mud in your eye. What's next on the cuff? Waiters and bartenders of the early 1900s would often keep track of running tabs in bars by marking pencil marks on the stiff cuffs of their starched white shirts, so on the cuff came to mean on credit. Considering the forgetful nature of drunks, it's little wonder it later came to mean on the house. Aha! Hooch, a good word, a derivative of hoochie knew. Who, 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 who knew it would hoochie knew? <laughs> a liquor named for the Alaskan Indians who distilled it. A favourite beverage of the prospectors of the 1898 Klondike Gold Rush. <laughs> oh dear, that takes me back to pantomime when I was a prospector. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> they brought back the abbreviated version to the lower 48 and applied it to any cheap liquor they could get their hands on. Hooch. Hoochie new. Hooch. I like that. I'm sure there could be a song about that. How about On the Wagon? Though it didn't appear in print until 1904, this defeatist phrase existed in earlier forms as On the Water Wagon or On the Water Cart. The temperance movement then, again, of the time would take the figurative to the literal and drive water wagons from saloon to saloon, encouraging drunkards to get on board and savour some aqua pura, which some of them no doubt did, especially if they needed a ride to the next saloon. <laughs> I like the idea of that. Hydrate between saloons, always a winner. How about a Brannigan? Now this colourful and increasingly popular term describing a drinking spree, often a Brannigan, probably owes its life to the popular 1820 Irish ballad Barney Brannigan, sometimes Barney Brallahan actually, in which the eponymous hero rouses his heart's true desire at two in the morning with promises of whiskey and wine. The term was immortalised in Emily Bronte's wildly popular book Wuthering Heights, believe it or not, when Heathcliff declared to Cathy, Excuse me, my dear, but I shan't be in for supper this evening as I'm off out on a prolonged brannigan with the boys. Aww. I'll come home and give you a good beating after five stellars. No, I won't. We're not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> Puke is a good word. Drunkards were puking as early as 1598. Probably a derivative of the German word spooken. Spooken to spit. It first appeared in print in Shakespeare's As You Like It. His act's been seven ages at first, the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Strangely, it wasn't recorded as a noun for the physical manifestation of puking until 1961. The words relative, upchuck, appeared around the same time, chuck meaning to throw, thus a slangy reversal of throw up. Katzenjammer, a great word, still used today by Germans to describe a hangover. Fortunately, I don't really suffer from hangovers. That's not a bad thing. 
It does literally mean, though, wailing cat. I've heard a few of you listening to this mule in the past. It was also quite popular in the mid-19th century America, and long overdue a comeback, I think. Paint the town red, how about that one? This was first recorded in 1884. The phrase for a wild night on the town may have been from a much darker history. At the height of the Roman Empire, their soldiers made a habit of painting the walls of a conquered village or town with the blood of the vanquished. Alternative sources say it was a metaphor for putting a torch to a town, you know, just for fun, as the Romans did. Anyway, rum. Rum? We all know rum, you say, but it was originally called Rumbullion in 1651 by Richard Ligon, an American who happened upon the stuff in Barbados. Lucky Richard. His review wasn't exactly glowing. Rumbullion, alias Kill Devil, is made of sugar cane distilled, a hot, hellish, and terrible liquor. Will overpower the senses with a single whiff. <laughs> There's too much a in this. <laughs> the word rumbullion formerly existed as either Royal Navy jargon for an uproar or Creole slang for stem stew. It's not difficult to imagine the uptight Mr. Ligon applying either meaning to the devilish liquor, though. It was shortened to rum three years later, but its reviews did not get any better. In 1654, a general court order was issued in Connecticut to seize and destroy whatsoever Barbados liquors commonly called rum, kill devil, or the like. Demon rum was first coined by Timothy Arthur in 1854 in his temperance play. It would be temperance again, wouldn't it? And it was called Ten Nights in a Bar Room. And it wasn't long before the frame came to describe all forms of evil alcohol. Ooh, the rum bugger. <laughs> what else do we have? Oh, talking of those people, teetotalers. The source of the term for a person so determined not to have fun, he will refrain from drinking, is a little bit murky. A bit like the rum. Some believe it makes reference to those determined to drink only tea as a beverage. But it seems unlikely they would ever forget how to spell their preferred beverage. The more likely theories are one. It was used in a speech by a temperance leader in England in 1833 in the form of teetotal, as in just the letter T. Some say he stuttered to total, but he later swore he was merely emphasising how totally abstentious he really was. I'm totally off the beer, Granville. That's terrible, I should not do this. And two, signing a temperance pledge originally meant you would only refrain from hard liquor. Beer and wine were still okay. But a New York Temperance Society started the fad of putting a T next to their signatures, inferring that they would be totally temperate. The admonishing term teetotalitarian, easy for you to say, first appeared in Somerset de Chere's 1947 satire, The Teetotalitarian State. Have a go at saying that after a few beers. What else do we have? Wet one's whistle. Many believe this refers to the whistles that were baked into the handles of 17th century drinking mugs, so as to alert the bartender that you were a bit thirsty. But this seems rather unlikely. Contemporary bartenders will bristle at the mere snapping of fingers. Can you imagine how they'd react to a room full of shrill whistles? Oi, bartender! It's <laughs> the best whistle I can do. And their forerunners were probably no different. If I may unsheath Occam's razor, ooh, Occam's razor, hello. The simpler and much more likely explanation is that it's merely a humorous reference to wetting one's mouth. Ever try to whistle while parched? Well, have a nice drink, it's much easier. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales describes a gentle lady who had partaken in more than her share of ale as she was jolly whistle welly wet. <laughs> Good old Chaucer. No idea what he was talking about. Maybe he'd had a few as well. 
And what of that one I mentioned earlier, Been Too Free with Sir Richard? Do you know that one? For those of you in the colonies, you may know it. This comes from Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, which talked about the problems with over-drinking, and that drunkenness is the worst evil, makes some men fools, some beasts, and some devils. He also said, When the wine enters, out goes the truth. <laughs> I can agree with all of that. While loving the drink itself, Franklin was so contemptuous of out-of-control drunkards that in 1737 he published The Drinker's Dictionary, a list of over 200 alternative terms for drunkenness he had overheard in taverns over the years. And that was in his newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. Anyway, that's enough of the etymology, the history of phrases. Where shall we go next? I know. More drunkenness. Let's have some historical drunkenness. Well, we've had historical drunkenness already. Let's have historical drunken tales and some great drunks of our time. Let's move on. Ah, where to start? How about Admiral Edward Russell's 17th century throwdown? That sounds like a good album name. Think you can drink like a sailor? Well, maybe you should take a moment to reflect on what that truly means. The record for history's largest cocktail belongs to the British Lord Admiral Edward Russell. In 1694, he threw an officer's party that employed a garden's fountain as the punch bowl. The concoction, a mixture that included 250 gallons of brandy, 125 gallons of Malaga wine, 1,400 pounds of sugar, 2,500 lemons, 20 gallons of lime juice, and five pounds of nutmeg for good measure. A series of bartenders actually paddled around in small wooden canoes, filling up guests' cups. Not only that, but they had to work in 15-minute shifts to avoid being overcome by the fumes and falling overboard drunk. The party continued non-stop for a full week, pausing only briefly during rainstorms to erect a silk canopy over the punch to keep it from getting watered down. Only in England could rain stop play. In fact, the festivities didn't end until the fountain had been drunk completely dry. There was also the London Brune Army of 1814. Now, the Industrial Revolution wasn't all steam engines and textile mills. Beer production increased exponentially as well. Fortunately, the good people of England were up to the challenge and drained kegs as fast as they were made. Brewery owners became known as beer barons and they spent their newfound wealth in an old age manner, by trying to party more than the next guy. Case in point, in 1814, Moore's Horseshoe Brewery in London constructed a brewing vat that was 22 feet tall and 60 feet in diameter, with an interior big enough to seat 200 for dinner, which is exactly how its completion was celebrated. Why 200? Because a rival had built a vat that seated 100, of course. After the dinner, the vat was filled to its 4,000 barrel capacity. Pretty impressive given the grand scale of the project, but pretty unfortunate given that they'd overlooked a faulty supporting hoop. Ooh, hoop, always a good word. Yup, the vat ruptured, causing other vats to break, and the resulting commotion was heard up to five miles away. A wall of 1.3 million gallons of dark beer washed down the street, caving in two buildings and killing nine people by means of drowning, injury, poisoning by the porter fumes, or drunkenness. The story gets even more unbelievable though. Rescue attempts were blocked and delayed by the thousands who flocked to the area to drink directly off the road. 
I bid. And when survivors were finally brought to the hospital, the other patients became convinced from the smell that the hospital was serving beer to every ward except theirs. A riot broke out and even more people were left injured. Sadly though, <laughs> this is the darker side of me thinking, the incident was not deemed tragic enough at the time to merit an annual memorial service and or reenactment. <laughs> Brunami, ooh. <laughs> That's terrible, people died and got drunk. What else, what else do we have? Oh, the New York state of mind. How the Dutch ingratiated themselves to the natives. In 1609, the Dutch sent English explorer Henry Hudson westward for a third attempt at finding the fabled Northeast Passage. Isn't that up the Oxo Tower? No, that's a different subject altogether. Anyway, a near mutiny forced him southward, and upon reaching land, he encountered members of the Delaware Indian tribe. To foster good relations, Hudson shared his brandy with the tribal chief, who soon passed out. But upon waking up the next day, he asked Hudson to pour some more for the rest of his tribe. From then on, the Indians referred to the island as, and I apologize profusely on how I say this, Manahaktanink literally meaning the high island. <laughs> and not high as in tall, high as in the place where we go to get blotto. Most people would agree that Manhattan has stayed true to the spirit of its name ever since. Also in history, there was the DUI that roused a nation, Paul Revere's Medford pre-party. Turns out Paul Revere's famous ride didn't start out as a hooting, hollering, wake up the villagers sort of trip. According to historian Charles Tausig, Revere embarked on the stealth mission from Charlestown to Lexington in order to warn Sam Adams, the beer guy, and John Hancock, the big signature guy, that the British were coming. But by chance, his route took him through Medford, the rum capital of America. At the time, rum was colonial America's number one commercial industry. So naturally, Revere stopped in for a brief rest at the house of Captain Isaac Hall, the leader of the local Minutemen and distiller of Old Medford Rum. By the time Revere saddled up again, he'd sampled his fair share of Captain Hall's hospitality and he who came a silent horseman departed a virile and vociferous crusader with a cry of defiance and not of fear. Not surprisingly, Revere was pulled over by the authorities, the Redcoats, and detained for an hour before being released. So it was actually Revere's drunken caterwauling that roused Adams and Hancock at about 4.30 in the morning, only half an hour before fighting broke out on Lexington Green. Unfortunately though, history has no record of Revere's reaction when he awoke the next day, presumably nursing the hangover from hell. And he was then informed of what he'd done. What else do we have? Indian elephants raided the liquor cabinet. No wonder they don't sell beer at the circus. Apparently elephants like to get wasted. Oh, we can't have elephants at circuses anymore. Do we have dancing birds? No, we can't do that anymore. Oh, good grief. We need to go a bit more PC on our circuses. In fact, an outpost of the Indian army in the jungle region of Bagdogra has been under attack ever since a local herd of elephants raided the base in search of food and discovered the soldiers' entire winter rations of rum. It's rum again. It's always rum. Since then, the pachyderms, a great word for elephants, have regularly raided the base for a drink and have smashed down all defences put in by the army, including electrified fences and firewalls. According to the Daily Telegraph, an officer recently posted there explained that the elephants broke the rum bottles by cleverly curling their trunks around the bottom. Then they emptied the contents down their throats. They soon got drunk, he said, and swayed around. They enjoyed themselves and then returned to the jungle. This is by no means a singular incident, though. The animal kingdom is well known for its ability to identify fruit that has begun to ferment. 
Anthropologists also believe this is how early man discovered alcohol by observing the strange behaviour of animals on a fruit bender. We didn't mention bender earlier, did we? Bender's a good word. Off out in a bender. As with Paul Revere, though, there were also quite a few famous people who managed to make history while being totally leathered. There'd be many famous drunks throughout history, but who was the biggest drunks in history? The legendary, world-famous alcoholics that took things to another level. It's not just about the quantity of booze they imbibed, either. The most famous drunks from history were famous because of what drinking, allegedly, allowed them to do. Or what they did, despite being slightly buzzed or totally hammered, most of their waking hours. Famous drunks have won wars, ruled nations, written masterpieces, done podcasts, and they've all totally embarrassed themselves and everyone that loves them. These people aren't necessarily worth emulating, true, but there are some lessons to be learned here. Who's first on the list? Ulysses S. Grant. The Union General and later President Ulysses S. Grant, absolutely fantastic name, might just be history's most highly functioning, high functioning alcoholic. That does make sense, trust me. But it wasn't always so. During the Mexican War in 1854, Grant resigned from the army before he could be tried for being too much under the influence of liquor to properly perform his duties. But Professor Lyle Dorset of Wheaton College argues that his continued alcoholism, his escape hatch from troubles, when he re-enlisted in 1861, actually made him the great military leader President Lincoln so desperately needed to win the Civil War. Grant's alcoholism, Dorset argues, allowed him to brush aside caution because he had absolutely nothing to lose. That said, Grant wasn't wildly responsible. One historian says his benders were a release, but a controlled one. Like the ignition of a gas flare above a high-pressure oil well, I guess. Who do we have next? Yes, the one and only Ernest Hemingway, whose liver was literally sticking out. Author and world-class drinker Ernest Hemingway was least productive when he was drinking the most. In the summer of 1953, Eight years before his suicide, and one year after The Old Man and the Sea, his final novel published in his lifetime, Hemingway was drinking two or three bottles of liquor a day, as well as wine with meals, and he was living in East Africa. A ranger with the Kenya Game Department, Denis Safiro, says that drinking made Hemingway merrier, more lovable, and more bullshitty. Without drink, he was morose, silent, and depressed. Unsurprisingly, liver problems haunted Hemingway. Fellow author George Plimpton said throughout the 50s, you could see the bulge of Hemingway's liver stand out from his body like a long, fat leech. As early as 1935, the man whose legendary drinking helped make the mojito famous in America, despite there being no proof he actually ever drank them, wrote to his friend Ivan Kashkin about alcohol's allure. I have drunk since I was 15, and few things have given me more pleasure. When you work hard all day with your head, and know you must work again the next day, what else can change your ideas and make them run on a different plane like whiskey? <laughs> That's my best Ernest Hemingway. I have no idea what he sounded like. Another famous drunk? Boris Yeltsin, the former Russian president. He got so drunk he thought he could conduct an orchestra. And he's definitely the most publicly drunk world leader of the modern era, with stories of his benders making headlines worldwide. But in 1994, he snapped and snatched a baton out of the hand of a conductor of a military orchestra in Berlin and began conducting them himself. He later wrote that, The weight would lift after a few short glasses. 
and, in that sense of lightness, I felt as if I could conduct an orchestra. I went, oh, God, God, uh, 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 there. Anyway, we've all been there, right? We all conducted an orchestra in Berlin. In 1995, Bill Clinton actually said of Yeltsin, while he was staying in D.C., he was discovered drunk in his underwear, hailing a cab on Pennsylvania Avenue. Good lad. Clinton said that Yeltsin had told Secret Service agents, we just wanted a pizza. We've all been there too, right? Although without the Secret Service and the presidents. <laughs> the story goes on and on, including a champagne-inspired rant at an event in Stockholm in 1997 about how Swedish meatballs reminded him of tennis star Bjorn Borg's face. <laughs> dear, oh dear. How about another drunk from history next, and this time from the art world? Vincent van Gogh, the man who spent all day in the sun drinking absinthe on an empty stomach. He was a famous penniless and earless painter and was not only a heavy drinker, but a heavy drinker of absinthe, the cocaine of the 19th century. We know this because Vincent wrote copious letters to his brother Theo about his alcoholism and his absinthism. <laughs> That's not easy to say. A condition brought on by imbibing too much of absinthe's toxic thujone can cause severe stomach problems and a marked deterioration of the nervous system. To make matters worse, Van Gogh's friend Anton Kursemakers says that the artist ate very little, but always drank while he was painting. Another friend and artist, Paul Signac, said that what Van Gogh drank was always too much. After spending all day in the sun painting, the absinths and the brandies would follow each other in quick succession. Signac even once had to stop Van Gogh from drinking turpentine, a bizarre compulsion that might have been a side effect of the absinthism. <laughs> How about Joseph McCarthy? Apparently he drank a quart of booze per day while hunting communists. Him and Yeltsin in the same room would be great. McCarthy versus Yeltsin, showdown. <laughs> anyway, communist hunter Joseph McCarthy went from national hero to national disgrace in near record time, a downfall that likely contributed to the increasing severity of the alcoholism that ultimately killed him. During the infamous McCarthy hearings, he was drinking a quart of liquor a day. His biographer, however, warns against characterising McCarthy as living out his final days in an alcoholic stupor. He would frequently go on the wagon, for him this meant beer in place of whiskey, but for days and weeks at a time, and I think this was for the best, as apparently he went to pieces on the second or third drink and he did not snap back quickly. Talking of presidents, good old Dickie Nixon. Now Richard Nixon got so drunk he wanted to nuke Vietnam. True story. The former president, well the former disgraced president, was drunk throughout his presidency. According to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Seymour Hirsch, he sometimes drank exceptionally at night, to the point where you couldn't reach him at Camp David. He even once had a few too many at a restaurant in Miami and offered a random woman a job at the White House. But as I said, perhaps the most alarming incident, when he was quite drunk in 1970, when North Korea shot down a US plane, he was reportedly ranting and raving in the middle of the crisis. And there was the story about Nixon drunkenly telling Henry Kissinger that we've got to nuke Vietnam. <laughs> That's not even close to Richard Nixon's accent, but it'll do. One aide even wondered what would happen if the Soviet Union attacked at night, because Nixon was so frequently incapacitated. Another world-famous incapacitated leader, another great, Winston Churchill, who drank wine for breakfast and scotch for brunch. Winston Churchill's drinking was so legendary that the Churchill Centre, founded in 1968 to educate new generations on the leadership, statesmanship, vision, courage and boldness of Sir Winston Churchill, has a whole page dedicated to carefully setting the record straight. 
the consensus is that the former British Prime Minister was alcohol-dependent, but not an alcoholic. <laughs> really? He occasionally drank Hock, a dry white wine, with breakfast, which I guess is like a budget-conscious mimosa, right? Throughout the morning, he would drink his Papa cocktail, which was Johnny Walker, heavily diluted with water. Oh, Winston, give it up. Johnny Walker, no way. He reportedly drank heaviest during meals, especially after being knocked down by a car. His doctor said his convalescence necessitates the use of alcoholic spirits, especially at mealtimes. Good on you, doctor. Well done. I need a, a doctor like that. The verdict, it appears, is that Churchill, with his formidable capacity for booze, was likely just coasting on a buzz most of the time and was rarely, if ever, publicly drunk. It's how he was raised. He claimed that his father taught him to have the utmost contempt for people who get drunk. So just stay buzzed. <laughs> and you're drunk all the time. Good grief. Let's go on to Jackson Pollock. Can't beat a load of Pollocks. Who lived and died drunk. Famous abstract expressionist Jackson Pollock had a fatal love affair with alcohol. He tried to get help. Doctors prescribed him tranquilizers. His family made him vegetable juices, Brussels sprouts and dandelion juice. Mmm, tasty. And healthy smoothies and fruit drinks too. But ultimately, nothing could get him to kick the habit. Art critic Lee Siegel says except for intermittent dry spells, Pollock was drunk almost every day and every night of his adult life. Some argue that his drinking inspired his distinctive style. But one thing's for sure, the end of his short life, he was only 44, was horrific. And booze was at least partially to blame for, well, for the ending of his life. As James Hall of The Guardian puts it, his life ended horrifyingly and murderously when in an alcohol-fueled rage, he drove his convertible Oldsmobile into a tree at 80 miles per hour, decapitating himself and killing a female passenger and nearly killing his young mistress in the process. Good grief, Jackson. Who else have we got? Sultan Salim II was known as the Drunkard. Sultan Salim II ruled the Ottoman Empire from 1566 to 1574. The year he died in a less than dignified manner, drunk with Cyprus wine, he totted to take a bath, slipped on the shiny marble floor of the Hammam, the Turkish bath, and broke his skull. Salim II was known as the Sot, or the Drunkard, not just by his friends. This is how he is literally listed in history books. His father and predecessor, by the way, were known as the Magnificent and Sublime. No wonder Salim II drank so much. Other biographies claimed he cared only for drink and the pleasures of the harem, and preferred the clashing of wine goblets to the shock of arms. Salim II famously avoided the battlefield. Good lad. Back to the literary world. How about a bit of Mark Twain, who never refused to drink? The author Mark Twain's legacy as a hard drinker even trickled down to his 150th birthday celebration in 1985, he wasn't there, in his hometown of Hamilton. I think that's in Missouri. I could be wrong. Hannibal, Missouri? Somebody will correct me. As reported by Eileen Oggins of the Chicago Tribune, who opened her report with the following line, There are some in Mark Twain's hometown who think he was no better than an old drunk. But was the Huckleberry Finn guy really that bad? His own words reveal that he loved to drink. He once wrote in his notebook the following maxim, Never refuse to do a kindness unless the act would work great injury to yourself, and never refuse a drink under any circumstances. That wasn't a bad Mark Twain, I don't think. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Was he from Wyoming? From Wyoming. Anyway, his practice of ordering two drinks at the same time is one explanation for his pen name. He wrote to his wife, Livy, in 1874, 
about his newfound love of cocktails after visiting London and told her he wanted one specific drink before breakfast, before dinner and just before going to bed. In 1875, he even convinced Livy, previously uninterested in drink, to drink a beer every night. Right, who's the final historical figure on this list? Ah, gold lover! Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Elizabeth Angela Marguerite Bowes-Lyon, also known as Queen Elizabeth, not the second, the one that died recently. This was her mum, the Queen Mother. Now, she lived to be 101, despite a life of heavy and expensive drinking. She reportedly started her day with her favourite tipple, gin and bonnet, two parts de bonnet, a pink vermouth to one part gin. With lunch, she would enjoy red wine, with port after, she called 6pm her magic hour, and would always enjoy a martini at that time. With dinner, she would drink two glasses of Veuve Clicquot, pink champagne. Oh, <laughs> oh I went all Lord Charles, oh, silly ass. And that was a grand total of 70 units of alcohol in a week in a country that now recommends only 14 per week for women. God save the Queen! <laughs> God love them. Oh, let's move on, shall we? Ooh, being the Queen, Mum, is a lot of hard work. There's hand-waving practice, buying a new hat with a lot of fruit on it, and decanting the gin. Hardest, though, is sitting at home all day, being a credit to the nation. Now, we've talked about history and some famous drunks, but there was one iconic British drunk that maybe needs an entire section. Paul Gascoigne, the footballer? Nope. Although there was the time he took an ostrich to training when playing for Spurs and used to drink a bottle of brandy before a game. Nope, not him. George Best? Definitely not him, although he could have a podcast all of his own. Richard Harris? Nope, he was Irish, he wasn't British. It has to be the one and only. In fact, I'll let someone else introduce him. Ladies and gentlemen, Oliver Reed. In the green room before the show, Ollie Reed drank the minibar. Literally. I've never seen a man swallow a small fridge before. The one and only Robert Oliver Reed. Ollie Reed, as he was known colloquially, I guess. In fact, before I talk about him, there's one thing I have to do at this point. Let's raise a drink to Ollie Reed and other friends drunken and departed. Cheers. Oh, delicious. Holly Reed was born on the 13th of February 1938 at number 9 Durrington Park Road, Wimbledon. That's in southwest London. He was born to Peter Reed, a sports journalist, and Marcia, Nee Napier Andrews, and he was the nephew of film director Sir Carol Reed, and grandson of the actor manager Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree. Yes, Beerbohm Tree was his real name. And Sir Herbert's mistress, Beatrice May Pinney, who also later assumed the name Reed, Reed detailed her as the only person who understood, listened to, encouraged, and kissed him. Well, there you go. 
Reid claimed to have been a descendant, through an illegitimate step, of Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia. Hmm. Reid attended 14 schools. I think he was expelled or changed from many of them, including Ewell Castle School in Surrey. He later said, My father thought I was just lazy. He thought I was a dunce. But we're not here for his early years. Reid was an English actor, known for his well-to-do, macho image and Hellraiser lifestyle. After making his first significant screen appearances in Hammer Horror Films, oh my goodness, they could have a whole episode to themselves. Hammer Horror Films, I used to love those. From the early 1960s. His notable films included The Trap in 1966, playing Bill Sykes in the 1968 Best Picture Oscar winner Oliver, a film actually directed by his uncle Carol Reed. There was Women in Love in 1969, Hannibal Brooks in 1969, The Devils in 1971, great movie. And he portrayed Athos in The Three Musketeers in 1973 and The Four Musketeers in 1974. He played the lover and stepfather in Tommy, the 1975 Who rock opera. He was in Funny Bones in 1995 and finally in Gladiator in the year 2000. In Gladiator he played Antonius Proximo, the old gruff gladiator trainer in Ridley Scott's film. Ridley Scott, now there's an interesting fact, went to art school in my hometown. There you go. Means nothing to a lot of people, means a bit to me. But Gladiator was to be his final film. Reed was actually posthumously nominated for the BAFTA Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role in 2000. At the peak of his career in 1971, British exhibitors voted Reed fifth most popular star at the box office. The British Film Institute, the BFI, stated that Partnerships with Michael Winner and Ken Russell in the mid-60s saw Reed become an emblematic Brit flick icon. But from the mid-1970s, his alcoholism began affecting his career. With the BFI adding, Reed had assumed Robert Newton's mantle as Britain's thirstiest thespian. Easy for you to say, BFI. Reed claimed he had worked previously as a boxer, a bouncer, a taxi driver, and even a hospital porter. He then did his compulsory army service in the Royal Army Medical Corps. The army helped, he said later. I recognised that most of the people were actors as well. I was in the peacetime army, and they were all telling us youngsters about the war. Oliver Reed famed for such drinking feats as downing 106 pints of beer in 24 hours, allegedly. Once confessed that, but for the help of a friend, he could never have shot his nude wrestling scene with Alan Bates in Women in Love. The friend, an entire bottle of vodka. My only regret, Reed once declared, is that I didn't drink every pub dry and sleep with every woman on the planet. <laughs> Good lad, Ollie. Reed was known for his alcoholism, as I said, and famous or infamous binge drinking. Numerous anecdotes exist, such as I said, Reed and 36 friends drinking in one evening, 60 gallons of beer, 32 bottles of scotch, 17 bottles of gin, 4 crates of wine, and 1 bottle of baby sham. If you don't know what baby sham is, Google it. It was very popular in the 70s. Pretty shite, but there you go. But Reed subsequently revised the story, claiming he drank 106 pints of beer on a two-day binge before marrying Josephine Burge, as you do. He said, the event that was reported actually took place during an arm wrestling competition in Guernsey about 15 years ago. It was highly exaggerated. In the late 1970s, Steve McQueen told the story that in 1973, he flew to the UK to discuss a film project with Reed, who suggested that the two of them visit a London nightclub. They ended up at a marathon pub crawl throughout the night, during which Reed got so drunk, he vomited on Steve McQueen. <laughs> How many people can say they've done that? Thankfully, not me. He was also a close friend and drinking partner of The Who's drummer, Keith Moon. 
Oh my goodness, what a partnership that would be. And they met in 1974 while working together on the film version of the musical Tommy, the rock opera by The Who. Very good listen. I really enjoy listening to that still. But with their reckless lifestyles, Reed and Moon had much in common. And both cited the hard-drinking actor Robert Newton as a role model. Sir Christopher Lee, a friend and colleague of Reed, commented on his alcoholism in 2014. When he started after drink number eight, he became a complete monster. It was awful to see. That's my best Christopher Lee voice. Probably sounds nothing like him, but there you go. Roger Daltrey of The Who recalled the time on the Tommy set. Reed played the stepfather in Tommy and had a legendary name for being the drinker. He would outdrink Richard Harris, Richard Burton. He could put them all under the table until Moon came along. So Moon challenged Ollie to a drinking contest in the great big monastery in Surrey. Oh my goodness. So he challenged him to a drinking contest and they've got a bottle of brandy each. Apparently it was about the third bottle of brandy each that Oliver Reed passed out under the table. Moon stood up and said, fuck you Ollie, I'm going to the pub for a real drink. He went to his pub because Moon had a pub at the end of his drive. Maybe an episode on The Who could be one for the future too. Had Moon lived beyond 32 after his death due to a drug overdose, I think he would have beaten Reed to the mantle of The Drinker. Reed was often irritated though that his appearances on television chat shows concentrated on his drinking feats rather than his acting career and his latest films. On the 26th of September 1975, while Reed was interviewed by Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, Shelley Winters, who I might add was probably equally as drunk, angered by derogatory comments Reed had made about feminists and women's liberation, poured a cup of whiskey on his head live on camera. Let's have a bit of that, shall we? It's quite funny. Would you welcome, please, Oliver Reed. It's nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. How are you? Quite extraordinary. Yes, that's what... <laughs> that's what I hear. You and Miss Winters have never, uh, never worked together. No, we haven't. I'm, I'm intimidated by the British. <laughs> Why is that? You know, most Americans, and I've said that on the show before, seem to be intimidated by... English people in general, they feel a little, I guess, insecure, I don't know. No, most, most of them, you see, we made love to. Most of them. <clears throat> I would have remembered. You've forgotten. No, I don't know why, I think it's a myth. I think it's, um, yeah. I think it's very polite. I think America is an amazing country simply because um, it's comprised of a mosaic of European culture, do you understand? Yeah. And people that came to America came to America, it seems to me, because they thought that they were either economically or socially or religiously persecuted. And they came and they made a, a happy place of it. Right. Some of them behaved themselves and some, some of them were quite loud. We have a great mixture here. Can we end the show now? Please be quiet for a minute. Yes, sir. Good. I, I am not really used to this. Will you please be quiet for a minute while I talk to this gentleman? Good. I'm on the show yes, to talk. Okay. Not just to hear you, madam. Yes, sir. Right, 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 Oliver. This is like the beat. Right? <laughs> Women's liberation, madam, will never survive. <laughs> Not while I'm in the kitchen. <laughs> this could turn out to be a hell of a fight tonight. We're talking with Oliver Reed and Shelley Winters, and you brought up the word kinky, which is a word they use in England quite often, but it's yes. not too used here. Well, How would you define I that? And then English I'll ask... are rather kinky. They never talk about sex. Never. We just do it, madam. I guess don't you? A classic scene, I think. Now, Reed was held partly responsible for the demise of BBC One's Sin on a Saturday. 
after some typically forthright comments on the subject of lust, the sin featured on the first program. The series had many other issues, and a fellow guest revealed that Reed recognised this when he arrived, and virtually had to be dragged in front of the cameras. Near the end of his life, he was brought onto some television series specifically for his drinking. For example, The Word on Channel 4, the teen show, put bottles of vodka in his dressing room so he could be secretly filmed getting drunk. According to Reed, the whole thing was a stunt. I knew all about the secret camera, he said, and the vodka was water, and I was paid to act drunk. And to be honest, if you look back at The Word, there's a recording of it on YouTube. It does look a bit staged, and I do believe he wasn't quite as mullered as he came across. However, he had been very drunk on other shows. Reed left the set of the Channel 4 television discussion programme, and this is on YouTube too, and worth a look. It, the programme was after dark, and he arrived drunk and attempted to kiss feminist writer Kate Millett, uttering the phrase, Give us a kiss, big tits. <laughs> oh, Ollie, oh dear. She wasn't happy, understandably so. And all the other guests called him, Oh, Ollie, you are a terrible bore. <laughs> However, Evil Spirits, a biography of Reed that was written by Cliff Goodwin, offered the theory that Reed was actually not always as drunk on chat shows as he appeared to be, and I kind of agree to this on a certain extent, and rather he was acting the part of an uncontrollably sodden former star to liven things up at the producer's behests, although that's not always true in some appearances. During the filming of Rennie Harlan's Cutthroat Island in 1995, remember that one? He was cast in a cameo role as Mordecai Fingers. Due to his arriving extremely intoxicated, having already been in trouble in a bar fight before attempting to expose himself to lead actress Gina Davis, he was fired and replaced with British character actor George Mercell. Wherever Oliver Reed went, controversy would follow. Starring in Ken Russell's Women in Love, the first English-speaking commercial film to feature full frontal male nudity. Oh, Reed famously wrestled naked with Alan Bates, as I said earlier, he also starred in the first film to include the word fuck. The movie was I'll Never Forget What's His Name, as well as the first British film to be rated X due to its violent content. That was Sitting Target. Actually, talking of the wrestling scene, according to Ken Russell, the aforementioned homoerotic wrestling scene was not actually included in the original script, but due to his feeling that the censors of the time would not allow it to pass. Hearing this, Reed was none too pleased and apparently demonstrated his displeasure by wrestling Russell to the floor in his kitchen and pinning him to the ground until he agreed to include it. And I did mention earlier he used a bottle of vodka to help out, but he also said for the nude wrestling he admitted to considering a fiddle in order to enhance his performance. <laughs> However, after much deliberation, Reed simply challenged Bates to get it out in order to dispel any differences between the two actors' manhoods. Upon doing so, the pair decided there wasn't much in it either way, and filmed the scene sans manipulation. <laughs> While on the subject of Reed's mighty mallet, as he liked to call it during the 70s, Reed became famed for his party trick, which consisted of him exposing the thespian twig and berries in order to proudly display the bird claw tattoo that adorned them. Apparently police were once called to a remote rural location close to Reed's home in the early hours of the morning due to complaints that a number of naked men had been seen running across fields. The naked men were a rugby team who Reed had spent the evening entertaining, having consumed vast quantities of alcohol, the whole lot of them stripped off and went for a run through the fields surrounding Reed's house, their muscled white buttocks glistening in the moonlight. <laughs> their words on the report, not mine. Due to his notorious public appearances while under the influence, Reed became forever synonymous with alcohol. Reed was also famed for his various public feuds and opinions concerning certain well-known celebrities, 
Among them, as I mentioned earlier, Shelley Winters, but there was also Lee Marvin, Richard Harris and Jack Nicholson. During an interview, when asked about Jack Nicholson, Reed once stated, Nicholson? As far as I'm concerned, he's a balding midget. He stands five foot seven, you know. He tries to play heavies and doesn't quite make it. <laughs> My best Ollie Reed accent coming in there. Reed's comments concerning the longtime adversary and fellow Hellraiser Richard Harris and former Dumbledore were also often amusing. Even though people say Richard Harris and I have been having a great feud, it's not true. After all, how could we be feuding for years? I'd never heard of him until two weeks ago. <laughs> Good one, Ollie. Reed and Raquel Welsh began feuding in the mid-1970s after co-starring in The Three Musketeers, during the production of which Reed famously said that he would sooner sleep with her hairdresser. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, as fate would have it, Reed found himself cast as Welsh's husband in The Prince and the Pauper. A particular concern for Reed was the player's love scene, which he cracked, will probably be the longest kiss ever, because she won't be able to take her teeth out of my lower lip. Reed later joked that he had tried unsuccessfully to avoid kissing his co-star. I cabled actor Richard Harris and asked whether he wanted to be my stand-in. He said, with his toupee and his falsies, they were made for each other. In any event, the show and the kiss went off without a hitch. Lee Marvin, describing his first encounter with Reed, said, I was expecting to meet up with this actor, who was supposed to be Britain's Hellraiser. And what do I see but this tailor's dummy in pinstripe suit, looking more like a fucking banker. Reed, during his infamous 80s appearance on The David Letterman Show, continued the feud by pretending to forget Marvin's surname and claimed to have screwed Marvin at drinking during a drinking competition that allegedly took place between the pair. During the same show, Reed also caused David Letterman to lose his footing by pulling him forward during the greeting handshake, punctuated the interview by adopting an American accent, pointing at the camera and claiming, I'm after you, Stallone. <laughs> All nonsense, probably drunk on this one. He replied to Letterman's questions in German, spoke nonsense claiming he was a fisherman who wore boots in his ears, took the piss out of Letterman's nose by pressing his own down in imitation, and removed his glasses and stared Letterman down forcing Letterman to plead to the bandleader, Paul Schaefer, to accompany him. In fact, on both sides of the Atlantic, Reed became well known for his performance on chat shows. On the Merv Griffin show in the 70s, Reed sat listening attentively while Griffin reeled off some anecdote about Peter O'Toole in order to illustrate the temperamental nature of English actors. After enduring the entire story, Reed sat forward and, quite politely, pointed out that O'Toole was in fact Irish and not English. More famously still, he once asked permatanned British talk show host Richard Maidley why he had orange skin. <laughs> in fact, Reed's outspoken views on women often landed him in trouble. Once prompted about the fairer sex, Reed stated, American men like their women to have these special teeth and be perfectly coiffured and have amazing breasts. Have you seen an Italian mama with those kind of teeth? That kind of hair and that kind of waist, they're not like that. They're in the kitchen cooking for their families, doing what they should do. I believe my woman shouldn't work outside the home. Obviously went down very well. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. I'd love to see him on TV now. It would be hilarious. However, despite such vocal opinions on the subject, Reed did show some elements of compromise. I also use women as a sex object. Maybe I'm kinky. However, I like to talk to them as well. It doesn't make it any better, does it? Reed, who once asked, I like the effect drink has on me. What's the point of staying sober? He realised upon his arrival at Galway Airport in Ireland, while lying drunk on the baggage conveyor, 
that he was slowly killing himself with his constant alcohol binges. He tried to make amends for his past behaviour, which included spiking snooker star Alex Higgins' whiskey with Chanel perfume. Higgins reacted by squirting washing up liquid in Reed's creme de menthe. He'd obviously given up beer for creme de menthe. In his final years, when he lived in Ireland, Reed was a regular in the one-roomed O'Brien's Bar in Churchtown, County Cork, close to the 13th century cemetery in the heart of the village where he would be buried. Reed died from a heart attack in Valletta, Malta, on the afternoon of the 2nd of May 1999. This was during the filming of Gladiator. According to witnesses, he drank eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, half a bottle of whiskey, and a few shots of Hennessy Cognac in a drinking match against a group of sailors on shore leave from HMS Cumberland at a local pub. His bar bill totaled a little over 270 Maltese Lira. That's about $525 or 450 Great British Pounds. After beating five much younger Royal Navy sailors at arm wrestling, he did like his arm wrestling, Reed suddenly collapsed, dying while en route to hospital in an ambulance at the age of only 61. But I guess if you can live to be 61 and cram all that in, you don't live to be 99. As I said, he passed away filming Ridley Scott's Gladiator in Malta. His role was completed by means of placing a CGI replica of Reed's head onto a body double. It comprised of various jigsaw-like pieces of filming that Reed had completed. Scott admits it was his intention to provide Reed's screen career with a fitting end by having had him utter the final line of the film. However, after much trial and error, Scott was forced to abandon the idea due to the lack of usable footage. He does have that one great speech though in that movie, I'll have to find that. Reed's views on the subject of death were relatively well documented. Before he died, he arranged to have £10,000 out of his estate spent at his local pub, but only for those who are crying. <laughs> Discussing potential body disposal methods, Reed refuted the deep freeze method adopted by those such as rich Americans like Walt Disney, as he said. Also slated was the idea of him being laid out for days in his Sunday best in order to have people gawping at me to see what a dead ale razor looks like, as was cremation, as was burial due to his disgust at maggots having a ball crawling up my nose and out of my mouth, and burial at sea, who wants to be gobbled up by a big fish and become excrement that is swallowed up by a prawn, ending up as mayonnaise. Being nibbled at by a pretty girl, I don't want to be permanent shit. <laughs> Reed's ideal form of post-life disposal? I would rather end up a fertilizer under a sunflower, which is eventually made into sunflower seed oil, so that instead of nibbling me in her prawn cocktail, the pretty girl will rub me on her bristles as she suns herself on a beach in the Caribbean. <laughs> oh dear. I wonder what happened to him, actually. Maybe that was what happened. A funeral for Reed was actually held in Churchtown, County Cork in Ireland, where he had resided during the last years of his life, as I said. His body was interred there in Churchtown's Bruheny graveyard. The epitaph on his gravestone reads, He made the air move. Ultimately, we're all dead men. Sadly, we cannot choose how, but we can decide how we meet that end in order that we are remembered as men. Okay, I think that's enough for this episode. Pretty quite a good laugh, well, I've had fun. I hope you have. 
So let's end this with a few of the usual quotes and maybe a joke. I do like a good joke, as you know. I've actually got a few good parrot ones coming up. New parrot ones. Hello, Keith. Anyway, some quotes. Do what you must, but do it well. Above all, enjoy yourself. Oliver Reed. I spent a lot of money on booze, birds and fast cars. The rest I just squandered. That was George Best. Haha, <laughs> the footballer, fantastic. Do you like a bit of Georgie Best? When I die and they lay me to rest, I'm gonna go on the piss with Georgie Best. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Enough football songs. Another quote. I formed a new group called Alcoholics Unanimous. If you don't feel like a drink, you ring another member and he comes around to persuade you to have one. That was Richard Harris. <laughs> he was Dumbledore in the first movie, in case you didn't know or don't remember. Let's have another one. Let's go to Across the Pond for this one. My doctor tells me I should start slowing it down. But there are more old drunks than there are old doctors. So let's have another round. Willie Nelson, great one. Who else have we got? Oh, let's go back in time now. After the first glass, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see things as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are. And that is the most horrible thing in the world. Ah, the eponymous Oscar Wilde. Actually, we've got another one. A man's gotta believe in something. I believe I'll have another drink. That was W.C. Fields. <laughs> and finally, one last one. I'm still the best Keith Moon-style drummer in the world. That was Keith Moon himself. Okay, enough of this nonsense. I'm going to close out with a final joke, and I'll talk to you all very soon. Don't forget to look at the YouTube channel, Criskit. Lots of... Oh, we had a Jimmy Buffett song on there, Son of a Sailor. Might have a few more of his. I had Elvis Week last week, so take a look. What am I on to? Oh, the road to 500 subscribers. Good lot. <laughs> Good lot. Let's have them a lot. Anyway, let's have a joke. A grasshopper walks into a bar, and the bartender says, Hey, we have a drink named after you. The grasshopper says, You have a drink? Named Kevin. Next time you go drinking, you have to remember, it's like having a party, right? But the party is in your stomach. <laughs> the stomach is the bouncer. He's the door guy. You don't want to annoy him, right? Now, when you have a party, you invite your friends, you invite your family, because you know everyone gets along. No problems. Same thing when you have a party in the stomach. Now, if you're going to invite alcohol, stick to one group. Like beer, you can mix up all the beer you want, because beer knows one another. <laughs> They show up the stomach. He's here, I'm telling you, man. Hey, stomach, what's up, man? Listen, it's just us beer, you know? Looking for a little party, hang out, you know? <laughs> now, you know everyone, you know Coors Light, Sam Adams, Bex. Oh, hello, he's crazy, man. <laughs> he's nuts, man. You know Heineken, you know? And your stomach's cool with that. All right. 
Come on in, just keep it down, all of you, understand? Beer goes, are you sure? Because there's like 20 of us here, man. Beer goes in, having a good time. Now, a party. People find out about parties. So does other liquor. Next thing you know, a couple of scotches show up. How are you, Stormy Could You got a great party going on in there. Well, they couldn't throw in some big pipers. What do you say? Stomach, I don't know. Come on, show them that. Just went up and out. Now you're mixing a crowd up, stomach lets them in. Now that's when tension starts. People don't know one another, and that creates tension. Scotch is walking around with his boys. Come on, boys, look at there, look at that. Look at it, look at it. Oi! Heineken! Right here, you rot bastard, you. Don't like you. And now there's a lot of tension. You can feel it going on in there, but now everyone's showing up. Jägermeisters and Zambuka, Saki. Oh, how'd that party here tonight? What a big party. Come and help all my friend. Come on. Now the place is packed. There's a lot of tension. Everything's getting out of control. Your stomach. Hey, hey, come on, guys. I'm not going to tell you again. Keep it down. I've had it up to here now. And that's when the crazy people always crash the party. Who always shows up at the end of the night? Tequila. And Tequila doesn't show up alone. There's always eight or nine of them lined up. Stomach gets all brave. How you doing, Tequila? Listen. Listen. All right? It's a little late. Can't let you in tonight. I'm sorry. You know? Besides, I let you in three weeks ago. You ruined the place. You hear me? Tequila's like, come on, man. We won't start no trouble, man. We just came here to have a good time, man. Right, senor? That's right, senor. We left the worm back in the van. He won't mess with nobody, man. Like an idiot, your stomach lets in one shot of tequila. And then he sneaks in all his friends when no one's looking. Come on, man, ain't nobody looking. Go to the legs. Go get the worm. We're gonna go get the bone. Your stomach. All right, that's it. Everyone, get out. Oh, we doing? Not that way, the way he came in. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go, ham and eggs. Everybody, out. It's always like a stubborn old hot dog. I've been here for nine years, and this just ain't right. 